But I think the other thing we kind of dread when it comes to taxes is all the details, right? The easy form. Is it really easy? Right? You know, what tax deduction can you take? Which tax deduction can you not take? What tax are you supposed to be paying that you're not paying? What have you been paying that you shouldn't? For some of us, it gets so complicated. We just take the whole mess of the paper trail. We take it to someone else's office, and then we say, here, you figure it out. And I'll sign it when you're done, but don't get us in trouble with the IRS. Right? Taxes have been around a long time. Been around a long time. One man put it this way. Taxation in some form has been around as long as we have recorded history. The Egyptians taxed cooking oil. The Greeks taxed foreigners. And the Romans developed a tax system that would tax everything. These early societies used these taxations to fund general things like military and roads and things. Let's think about that. Let's think about a time before easy forms, before April 15th, before the IRS. Back in Bible times, there was taxes as well, right? The decree of Caesar Augustus that he made that caused Mary and Joseph to take that trip, you think he just wanted to know the number of people? No. He wanted to know the number of people to see how much he was going to tax each area. Roman conquered the Holy Land, Israel, and to pay for Roman protection and Roman roads, the Roman government demanded taxes be paid. And the way Rome did it was was interesting, especially with the way they did in Israel. It wasn't that you had a Roman collecting taxes or even a Roman making Jews collect taxes from other Jews. A Jew would actually become a Roman government official. So they weren't forced to just gather taxes from their other conquered Jews. They were actually an appointed government official. So if you were any Jew with any type of commitment to your national pride or any religious commitment to the Lord, how would you feel about that that other Jew who had turned, who was a traitor to you, who was working with the Romans and bowing, in a sense, to Caesar, getting paid by him. So this is where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance.
Where do we see Matthew? We're going to look at Matthew and the call of Matthew. Both here in, in the book of Matthew and references to Mark and Luke as well. Where do we see Matthew in this, in verse 9? The tax office, right? Okay. The way it's worded, it might be he's sitting in front of the tax office. He would be the scorn and derision of all who knew him. He would be considered a traitor to his country, to his religion, and to his God. And he would be considered an extortioner because he could take whatever money he wanted for whatever reason he wanted from anyone he wanted with the power of Rome right behind him. So they were known, they were known for being greedy and extortionists. And doing a study on this, there's actually two different kinds of tax gatherers. There was the general tax gatherer. You could see him going out into a village and taking a census of who's in the village, you know, what kind of crops they brought in, and uh, what kind of income they had made. And he would take a tax on those things, number of people, income, and harvest. But there was another type of tax gatherer. He was called the customs house official. You see, and that's who Matthew was. You remember the picture, if you remember the, the layout of the of the the land of Israel, this is the Sea of Galilee, and where we're at in the context here, is we're at Capernaum, right there on the coast, the Sea of Galilee. To the north of that, you have Damascus, and there's a major trade route going from Damascus down to the Sea of Galilee. Then you have on the Sea of Galilee, what type of occupation? Fishing, right? Right. So you have fishermen who are coming, docking their boats at Capernaum, then you have a major trade route going back and forth. And who do you have sitting there? Waiting for everyone to come by? Matthew, the tax collector, right? And no matter who you were or what you had, he could make you stop your cart and you unload everything. And then he looks at everything and then you pay tax on whatever he says. On the cart, on the mule, on the axles, on the wheels. Remember, Rome figured out a way of taxing everything. So Matthew was this worst kind of tax official. They're busy at that trade route. When you consider who Matthew was at that time, to, to borrow an expression used by Peter later, excuse me, used by Paul later, Matthew, if, if he wasn't the chiefest of sinners, he was up there. It was pretty bad. Traitor, extortioner, someone that was excluded. He was the tax guy and worse. Actually, if he was a more prominent tax guy, he would have other people doing this work and sitting out in front for him. Because even though he had a higher position than the the regular general tax gatherer, he wasn't prominent enough to have other people working for him. So he was sitting in front of his own office, seeing what was going on there in Capernaum. That was a good thing. That was a good thing. He probably already taxed certain fishermen we know. James and John, Peter and Andrew. I'm sure James and John's father knew of Matthew. It was because he sat in front of his tax office levying these taxes, taxes on all the business that would go by. That's when he saw the foot traffic stop. It would be a normal busy route 
all of a sudden everything stops. Jesus had come and hundreds, if not thousands, had stopped to listen to him. All the work had stopped. No one was going by. No one to tax. Nothing to do but what? Listen to Jesus. Do you hear him who taught like no one else? I, I have no doubt that Matthew noticed that Jesus was excluded from the religious of that day. They called themselves Pharisees. That means separate. They had separated themselves from Matthew and his kind as being sinners they could not and would not associate with. All the religious could do was condemn him. None could help him. But now here's Jesus. He's obviously a teacher come from God. He teaches the truth about who God is. And as Matthew listens to him, he doesn't feel like the Pharisees caused him to feel pushed away. He's drawn in. He doesn't feel excluded, but invited. When he listens to Jesus, he wants to draw close to the Lord. He doesn't know why the religious leaders don't like Jesus, but he knows that he does, and he wants to know more about Jesus. What was keeping Matthew back from knowing about Jesus? What did Matthew live for his whole life? Money. It's money. That's what he was living for. Now, after hearing Jesus speak, money just wasn't that important anymore. Maybe he heard Jesus talk more about money and hell than anything else. Maybe he could see that Jesus didn't have much money. Yet he was the happiest man alive. That which he and his friends and his relatives had sold their souls for, sold their place in society, lost their place amongst their people all for money. It didn't seem that important anymore. Jesus spoke of knowing God in spirit and in truth. Not the way the religious did, not in the outward appearance, but in reality. The words of Jesus had gotten through to this hopeless sinner. If you asked a Pharisee, what, was, what would be harder? To cure a paralyzed man, a leprous man, or for a tax collector to know God? Which one's he going to pick? He, he'd probably say they're all hopeless. Forget it. Can't happen. Who do we have here? We have Jesus, the miracle worker. And if you read the context of your Bible, Jesus had just done the first two. He had healed them, the hopeless. And now he was in the process of healing that last one as well. There in verse 9, what does Jesus say to Matthew? It's real simple. What does he say? 
Follow me. Right? Follow me. You know what's interesting to me about that? It's what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, you know, you're really rotten. Look at a horrible life you've lived. Before you can follow me, you really need to clean up your act. Nor, nor does Jesus say, you know, I'm not sure you're ready. Why don't, you, why don't you take some time and make amends to everyone you've ripped off and done all these wrong things too. And then when I come back next time, you know, we'll put you and I'll have some disciples and you can kind of learn from them all the things that you've missed while you were making amends. And we'll see about it next time. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says simply one thing. Follow me. What does that mean? Follow me. I have no doubt that Jesus saw the brokenness inside Matthew's heart. He saw the repentance. So Jesus gave this command. It means go where I go. See what I see. To hear what Jesus teaches. To obey what Jesus commands. It means to do things the way he would do them. It means to teach the things he teaches. It's a command not it's a command to follow a person. Not a religious organization or a set of ideals or a bunch of unauthoritative teachers that are no longer alive. No, Jesus told Matthew to follow him, to be with him, to live with him, to do with him. Simple, beautiful. What was Matthew's response? Continuing on in verse 9. This is all Matthew needed, wasn't it? What did he do? So he rose and followed him. Right? We're going to see Matthew's response. I think it's twofold. First, we see kind of a reckless abandon in following Jesus. It says that Matthew... Matthew rose and followed him. What happened to the tax office? By the way, what do you have in the tax office? Lots of money. Where was it now? Matthew's over here. It's back over there somewhere. Right? It's behind him. He put it behind him. In the parallel passage in Luke, it says that Matthew left all and followed Jesus. Well, who does that? Who leaves a high-salary, government-secure job to follow a seemingly penniless wanderer? Matthew does, because he was leaving it to follow Jesus. Do you get the impression Matthew did it begrudgingly? Why not? What does Matthew do next? Verse 10. It says, now it happens. Jesus sat at the table in the house, and you don't really get it from this version, but you learn from the, the, the parallel passages. What does Matthew do? He throws a party. This is great. Hey, I just quit my job. I don't have any income. Come on, let's throw a party. We learned that from Luke that it was Jesus sitting in his house because Levi wanted to throw a party. He wanted to throw a big shindig. 
That's what we used to say. I don't know if that's old or southern or what it is. But big shindig. A big party. At his own house. He was so excited that Jesus had called him a tax collector. A sinner. Matthew wanted to throw a party for Jesus. Why a party? I I think part of it is Matthew was showing his appreciation. I don't think there's anything wrong with showing appreciation to the Lord. He doesn't need it, but I think he appreciates it. But we also see the other part of Matthew's response here. He wanted his friends and relatives to meet Jesus. He had a great desire for those closest to him to see the one who had called him into a special relationship. A special relationship with himself. Matthew wanted them to meet the one who had so taught and affected him that all that he was living for before that never made him happy, that never satisfied, he could leave behind and find full satisfaction in Jesus. I left my job. You did what? It says that when you were a tax gatherer, tax gatherer, probably your whole family was. Can you think of what his mom and dad said? You did what? Come here, you got to hear Jesus. You just have to hear him. You've got to meet him. He's changed me from the inside out. How many tax collectors and sinners showed up? What does it say there? A couple of them kind of trickled in. He's got a main job on a main road. He just threw it all away. Many showed up. A lot of them showed up. Why do you think they did that? I think it's because they heard, they heard what happened to Matthew. And they heard the offer. We're always being excluded. Being kept from God. Jesus is saying, come here. I'm going to tell you how you can draw near to God. It says that many tax collectors and sinners showed up and many, it says, it says in a mark, many followed him. I think it was a party, no doubt. It was a feast. I, I think if anyone could throw, throw down a table, it would be a, you know, a tax gatherer. I mean, he's got money, he's got resources. He laid out a spread. But I don't think food was the important thing at that table. I think they hung on every word from Jesus. A man from God telling them that they could have a relationship with God. And it went beyond that dinner. It says many followed him. Long after that party was over, I believe. Verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw it, he said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When I think of this, uh, I read this, a phrase comes to mind in current, current use. I'm going to kind of misuse it a little bit, so hang with me here for a second. We have a term in the U.S. we call the religious right. Right? And ever since I got saved, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty apolitical. So sorry if I step on any toes this morning. But there's the religious right. And I don't know if the right are all that right that often. Even a broken clock's right twice a day. But you know when I look at these guys, I call them the religious wrong. 
because they just got it all wrong. They've got it all wrong. They're completely backwards. It was they who had made God seem so exclusionary that they were the righteous separated ones and the tax gatherers and sinners were hopeless. It was also they who were not rejoicing, seeing these sinners drawing near to God through Jesus. And the worst part for me as I read this verse is they wouldn't even talk to Jesus about it. You notice that? Maybe they had a sense that Jesus had another perfect answer for them that they wouldn't be able to respond to. Maybe they had a guilty feeling that Jesus was reaching these dregs of society that they never could. Regardless, instead of talking to Jesus, these religious, righteous, quote-unquote people say, in effect, why is your master eating with tax tax collectors and sinners? How How can he sit down and be friends with them? How can he drink with them and eat with them? Doesn't he know who they are? Isn't he defiling himself to be with them? You know what? They they just don't know who Jesus is. They have no idea who he is. They're the religious wrong. Jesus is the one, and the law said a leper is unclean. You can't touch a leper, you'd be unclean. Jesus is the one. He touches the leper. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. That's who Jesus is. Jesus touches the heart of these tax collectors and sinners. And he's not affected by them. He gets in and teaches them and speaks to their heart. And he changes them from the inside out. That's who Jesus is. That's the power of the Lord Jesus. The religious wrong wouldn't know anything about this. They were sinners too. They don't know the power Jesus has to change a life. I love that verse. John chapter 1. In him was life. And the life is the light of men. All the religious wrong could do was complain with this how this fraternizing doesn't fit into their grid. And they couldn't be more wrong. Verses 12 and 13. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It it amazes me how far off base we can be as people. Here, the most religious people probably in the whole world. The ones who should know God the best, the ones who should know what God wants the most. And they couldn't be any more off, any more wrong. The religious wrong here are complaining that Jesus, 
God in the flesh is coming and associating with sinners. That's exactly why he came. Aren't you glad? When Jesus hears about this complaint, he just tells him plainly, this is why I came. He didn't come for righteous people. He didn't come for good enough people. He didn't come for people who think they're doing well enough to make it to heaven on their own. Jesus came to call sinners. And I'm glad. I certainly don't fit that other category. I'm not righteous. I'm not good. I'm not even close enough. It's not even think about horseshoes and hand grenades. I'm nowhere near the map of getting to heaven on my own. And you see the illustration Jesus uses? It's perfect. <laughs> it's just absolutely perfect. He talks about well people and sick people and a doctor. How many people here have been to a doctor? No, I'm going to wait for you. Go ahead and raise your hand. How many people here have been to a doctor? How many people have been to a doctor just to show up and say, you know, I feel perfectly great, doc. I just thought I'd come in and tell you how wonderful I feel. It's ludicrous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. You would never do that. You would never do that. Why do we go to the doctor? You're sick. And I'm a little more stubborn. I like to try to usually make sure it's something I can't handle myself. Stacey, you all ask me, so, well, you, you going to go to the doctor? No. Why not? He's going to tell me to do this, 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 and this. And I already know that. So as soon as I try this, this, and this, and it doesn't work, then I'll go. But until then, I'm not going. Right? You go to a doctor, you can't handle it yourself. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious were not going to come to Jesus because they didn't see a problem. At least one that they couldn't handle themselves. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I don't think any of those guys would say they're perfect. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Only God is perfect. But I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than most. I'm doing better than I used to be. And I'm working on it, you see. I'm getting better. Do you know what that'll mean for the scribe, the Pharisee, every religious person, every self-confident person who ever lived? It means they'll never come to Jesus. They'll never come to Jesus. Sin's not that bad. Maybe it's horrific in someone else. Maybe it's horrible in your life. But I'm basically a good person. What's wrong with this thinking? What's wrong with a little self-confidence, right? A little self-confidence when it comes to your spiritual state is like a great meal, just a little seasoning of arsenic all over it. It's a deadly combination. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. The soul who sins shall die. We are so casual in how we look at our own sin. But it's one sin that's deadly enough to send us to hell. And we just don't see it. We don't open our eyes and realize it in fear.
not only, not only are we so casual about our own sin, you know, we're so brutal to others about their sin. That's why Jesus is quoting Hosea 6, 6 here. This is why I picked this over the other passages. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Can you imagine how merciless the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were to the tax collectors and sinners? How just merciless. This context here in Hosea, God is talking about pending judgment. And he's telling Israel what they need to do to repent. And they think, oh, I can just go through the motions, show up at church, you know, give them the breaking of bread, maybe share a little bit, go through the motions. Lord says, I don't want it. I don't desire your sacrifice. Don't try to do that and then be merciless towards each other. And how you treat one another, how you think about one another. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You think you can go through the religious motions and be merciless towards one another. You don't know me. Because honestly, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You don't know me if you think that's the way I am. To answer the question that should be asked here in this call of Matthew, who are the sick? Who are the sick? It's everyone. It's Pharisee. It's scribe. It's tax collector. It's sinner. It's disciple. We're all sick. But only those who know they are sick, those who know they have a problem with God, who know they don't deserve heaven, are going to reach out to Jesus and ask him to save him, to save them. In the same way that a doctor never sees anyone who thinks they're okay, so Jesus cannot help anyone who thinks they don't have a spiritual problem. He didn't come to congratulate the spiritually self-confident. He came to save sinners. What are our applications here? Well, I think the first application, the, the major application here is obvious. We didn't know that we're sinners. This is beyond, oh, I'm not perfect. I know I have some things to work on. It's not what we're talking about. It's not what God's talking about. No, it's that you're not going to get to heaven. And do you know why? Because you will never know who Jesus is. If you don't see sin for what it is, you don't see Jesus as being the only great physician who can reach in and cure you and heal you. Not that sin is going to drag you to hell. To say this is simple. But the realization of this truth to realize you're a sinner who deserves to go to hell, I believe, is the hardest thing in the universe to accept. I'm so bad, I've offended God so much that I deserve to go to hell, to be separated from Him forever. 
without hope, without excuse. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever come to Jesus that way? If you haven't, I would wonder if you've ever come to him at all. I remember uh, having started come to the chapel, taking some SBC lessons, and wrestling with this very point. And it hit me. That same question I just asked you, I asked myself. And I, I thought, I don't know if I've ever realized I deserve to go to hell. I took my Bible and my SPC lessons. I set it aside. I got on my face on the carpet of a double-wide mobile home in Fremont 20 years ago. I said, Lord, I don't know if I ever realized I deserve to go to hell, but I realize it now. I know from your word, because I feel like it, more importantly, I know it from your word that I deserve to go to hell. And I know, Lord Jesus, you died for me. You took my place. You took the equivalent, the punishment I deserve to save me from going to hell. They're not just my words. These are the words of Jesus. Are you really sick? Do you see Jesus as the only physician who can cure you of sin and a hell richly deserved? I think there are other applications in this passage that we need to look at. Once we realize that Jesus is that great physician, that he alone can save us, reach in and cure us, make us perfectly whole, and then he says to us, Follow me. What should we do? Well, I think Matthew sets the example. We should get up, leave everything behind, and follow him. With everything we got. What would that mean? I think like Matthew, it should mean this. We leave the job and all the benefits behind. We leave the, the 401k, the stock options, the retirement plans, and maybe one of the greatest retirement plans that grips the heart of people in this area, the retirement plan of the equity of a house in the Bay Area. Take all those retirement plans and all those benefits, all those things, leave it behind. Get up and follow Jesus. Like Matthew, I think the best thing to do is, is spend it on the Lord. I love that woman. She takes the most precious thing that she has of monetary value. And she takes it and she breaks it and pours it all over the Lord. And to the flesh, to the, the human reasoning, what was the response? What is this waste? But we know that's not truth we know jesus full appreciation of those who take everything they have and they break it and they pour it all over him this is going to be a testimony to her wherever this gospel is preached so it is today we take the 
the best the Lord has provided for us. The best, the most we have, when we break it, we pour it all over him. I don't know what this will mean in your life. But you know what? I know the Lord is worth it. The Lord is worth it. Reminds me of David's mighty men. They hear that those two mighty men hear his longing for that drink from the well of Bethlehem. And they risk their lives. And David sees that cup of water, realizes what they've done and said, I'm not worth this. Only the Lord is worth this. He didn't just pour it out to the ground. He poured it out to the Lord. The Lord is worth it. I think of the value of what that should mean to us today. Often people express their value. You ever seen that expression? What is your net worth? Right? And my simplistic way of looking at things, I believe it's you take all the things that you have, that your assets, your monies, your goods, you pay off all the bills and the debt and the mortgage that you have, right? And then you have this hopefully positive number that tells you your net worth. Now, it could be your net debt, the other side, or a negative number, but usually it's net worth. Is that pretty close, Gary? Yeah, I think Gary's not in his head. I think I got it pretty close. I wouldn't propose that a believer not look at his net worth. But you know what I would do? I would propose you compare it to your spiritual net worth. What do I mean by that? How much are you physically worth here versus how much you are worth in heaven? Obviously, I'm not talking about what you're worth to Jesus. He laid down his life for you. You can't measure that. But what I'm talking about is how much you've invested in eternity. And to me, it's a real simple equation. If you have more money, more net worth, whatever it is, more net worth here and now in this place that we could be gone from in a moment. Before this sermon is up, we could all be gone. And as we're leaving, there's all this net worth behind. And as we're going into heaven... There's a spiritual investment, a spiritual net worth there. Ask yourself what that delta is. Have I put as much going forward that will receive me, that will last forever, and less of what is vanishing away? Where moth and rust do destroy and thieves do break in and steal. As I thought about Matthew, I thought this makes all the sense in the world. Matthew's physical net worth, as soon as he left his job, was one last shindig. And that was about it. But what was his spiritual net worth at that point? It was incalculable. He obeyed Jesus, followed Jesus, and was going to be wherever Jesus was going to be. I call that wise investing. I think that's wise investing. I believe the Lord does too. What else? One last application. Did you see the divisions in this passage? Who are the divisions? What are the different divisions or sects or groups of people? We've got tax collectors. Uh, We'll lump them in with sinners. They're pretty close. Right? Tax collectors and sinners. 
We've got scribes and Pharisees, neither the scribes or the Pharisees. We've got disciples, right? Sectarianism. What is that? It's, that? it's that natural tendency in all of us to group around with the people that are like us. A natural draw towards them. How can you tell? Well, just ask yourself. Who do you talk to between the meetings? Who do you spend time with? Who do you have over to your house? What does James say about this? He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the partiality. See, it was the Pharisees who said, no, no, you're separate from us. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't have that attitude? <laughs> you want to talk about someone who had a right to be exclusionary, to exclude us. It was him versus all of us, and he'd be absolutely right. The idea of showing partiality or favoritism. It was true in the early church. James had to teach against it. He says it's not right. So the Lord of glory didn't act like this. He came down and associated with sinners. It's Jesus who came down to associate with us. We have no right not to associate with any and all that Jesus sends our way. I think in this assembly we have a challenge. In this assembly, in any given Sunday, there's half a dozen to a dozen different cultures. And it's much easier to say and do to spend time with those who's most like your own culture. Isn't it? Jesus didn't do this, and he calls us to follow him. But I want to give out a real simple test of partiality. Sectarianism, being separate. Look at the people in the assembly and see, who do you spend time with? Who do you show hospitality to? Just look at the directory. Just work, work down. And see who you reach out to. Now, if you don't show hospitality, if you're not showing hospitality in general, that's kind of a problem. Okay, let's start with first things first. Not only is it not an option, if you're an elder, you have to be given to hospitality. I mean, you just got to be, you know, so don't be given to wine in a different person. Be given to hospitality as an elder. You, you, gotta, you just, just got to be oozing out of you. So if you're an elder, or if you want to be an elder, that should be true of your life. It says in 1 Peter 4, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious, watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And so how, what does it say next? How can you show fervent love for one another? Covering a multitude of sins? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. It's right there. 
right there. What's Peter saying here? He's saying, get ready. Jesus is coming back. And the way you get ready is by loving the saints. And if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. You're going to go be with Jesus. So are the rest of us. So is everyone else in this assembly who knows the Lord. You're going to spend eternity with them. How about starting with an afternoon today? Show love now. To which ones? It says, to not show partiality, you need to show love to all the saints. Fervent love to one another. No exceptions, no partiality. Not just to the ones you get along with naturally, but all of them. I think that's where the, the rest of the phrase goes. It says, be hospitable to one another. And it says, without grumbling. <laughs> I think that's where the part where it comes in about not getting along with someone naturally. You know? Not grumbling. Do it lovingly. We shouldn't be saying things like, oh, do we have to have them over? But I don't know if they're going to like the kind of food I make. I think culturally, especially, it's not lost on me. The Lord's brought us from meanderings in Hayward and San Leandro this far south. And we've got so many different cultures in this area, in this assembly, and I think it's going to grow more that way. If you're worried about someone from a different culture and, and showing hospitality and reaching out to them, saved or unsaved, and you're wondering what you're going to do, what you're going to make, you know what you can do? Just ask them. What do you like? See if they have a natural aversion to certain foods. I was sharing about, we were talking about this, and one dear sister, I could see her just start to shrink, you know? And she comes from a culture that's different than mine. And I, I finally looked at her and I said, you don't like beef, do you? And she no. No. I said, well, what do you eat in your country? And I thought their country was predominantly vegetarian. Oh, we like lamb, we like chicken. I said, lamb? I never have lamb. Ew. You know, so that's what I'm thinking in my mind. And I could see her shrinking at the thought of beef. I said, well, what do you do when you're when you, over someone's house or you're going somewhere? She says, well, I make him taste it first, pointing to her husband. I thought, well, that sounds kind of like home. It hit me. Cultural struggles are the same all over. Are we going to let that keep us from fellowship? From obeying God when he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling? Most of us don't like something. I hate bell peppers and onions. I'm just going to tell you right now. Sometimes onions, some ways, but bell peppers, never. Okay. So I'm just letting you know right now, okay? If you serve it, I'll eat it, and I won't say a thing. But if you're asking, I'm telling you. Also, another way, you just let them bring something from their culture. Let them bring something from their culture over your house. Well, you say, oh, my husband would never try something like that. Ask him. 
Maybe he will. Maybe he'll do it for the Lord's sake. For the sake of having better fellowship in the church. Traditionally, the church has always been a melting pot of tribes, kindreds, nations, and tongues. You can go to a church in Israel right now and you'll find those of a Hebrew background and those of a Palestinian background in the same church. They get along. If that's what heaven's going to be like, what are each of us doing to reach out to each other? Lord, we do want to thank you. We want to thank you, Lord, that you didn't show partiality to us. But you were that doctor, that great physician, reaching out to us. Lord, we thank you that we who sat in the darkness and shadow of death saw a great light. And that light was you. Lord, we confess afresh today, in you is life. And that life is the light of men. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who've only let the word of God become so deep in their heart that they will not recognize how bad a sinner they are. Lord, may they hear it from your words, from your lips this morning, that they cannot come to heaven, they cannot come to you unless they know how sick they really are. That you, a vital relationship with you, a saving relationship, is the only way they can be healed. Lord, help us, those who know you, to get up, to leave it all behind, and to follow you. To have that spiritual, that eternal net worth that shouldn't even be compared to what we're going to leave behind here. And Lord, as we look forward to that day, help us to love one another, to be hospitable to one another, to fervently love one another in this way. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.